everybody. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. I'm sitting down today again with my friend, uh, anonymous friend, Lester. And we're going to be talking about the twilight of gold. And we left off last time. We were reading through the conclusions of the Cunliffe Report, which more or less explained the mechanics of the gold standard um, at a very intricate level. So, um, Lester, where should we pick yeah. up today? Well, let me just restate, like, what, what we covered at the end of last time was so dense, and there are so many light bulbs going off for me, even just talking about it with you, that I kind of want to restate it, because it's worth restating, even if you're going right from the last episode into this one, I think it's, like, so profound. So, the mechanism, the way the, the gold standard worked, it was a mechanism whereby a favor, I mean, this is very easy to understand, a favorable export balance by definition attracts or increases money in circulation. Mm -hmm. So, right, if you're exporting more than you're importing, money is coming into your country. Right. And an unfavorable trade balance causes a decrease in the money in circulation. Mm -hmm. So both an, both an increase of money coming in and a decrease, an, an increase of money going out an increase or a decrease in money supply, you can see how both of these things can cause a change in prices in within your country, within your mm. local economy. In a, in, in a similar way, if there's some sort of euphoric rise in credit and loans, somehow, like we, we, stop, we, we, we experience this here in the United States, then that also increases prices. Mm. But then those new higher prices domestically make it profitable. This was the whole digression we went on to. That's, there was that sentence in Cunliffe when, uh, when, when trade was favorable, it was profitable to export gold. And I was like, how does what? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Right. So when prices are, are higher locally, it's profitable to export gold to buy those same goods elsewhere where it's cheaper. And this kind of like goes back to the price specie flow mechanism the, the the original concept, which a lot of people criticize that it's not perfect, but whether or not price specie flow actually is accurate in capturing the the literal on like boots on the ground truth of the economic international economic system, it does explain why interest rates were created and why the central bank discount rate or the interest rate, why that methodology was developed by the central bank, and it was simply to attract gold mm. on a temporary basis when it was flowing out of the country mm. and temporary meaning due to seasonal fluctuations, not a fundamental trade imbalance where your country just can't get its shit together and export and make itself valuable to the rest of the world. But if there's a seasonal fluctuation, meaning like, you know, in seasonal fluctuations back to a time when agrarian economies were a much bigger part of the economy, you know, farmers need, money in the spring and then they get money in the fall. So you have money flowing back and forth seasonally. And so these interest rate tools were developed to help keep money temporarily in the, in the economy. That's mm. why, and it was, that's why they were created. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great points there. Um, you know, the, maybe to try and simplify this to some extent is, the profitability of imports and exports for a particular 
economy, or you could just say any any domestic, you could just look at it from a domestic standpoint. If we're in the US, if we are importing more than we're exporting, then we are basically generating a loss, right? So money would be flowing out of the country to pay for that that mm-hmm. deficit. Mm-hmm. And in the reverse case that we're actually exporting more than we're importing, the domestic economy is profitable. So we would then be importing money effectively. So you'd think of this domestic import export profitability is basically the control mechanism of whether money is flowing into or out of your country. And then to your point, banks start to use interest rate, basically controlling the price of money effectively to inhibit gold outflows, right? And as you describe that, this would be used to deal with seasonal fluctuations versus a country just not having its shit together. But clearly that's kind of a blurry line. That's a value judgment, right? <laughs> yeah. like when, when are you using interest rates to just control a seasonal fluctuation versus something more fundamental? Really hard to draw that bright line, I think. And I would add here that um, just to relate this to the modern economy, this is partly why countries still race to debase their currencies, right? To stimulate net exports. If you can denominate things in a uh, weaker currency, then you're actually incentivizing other countries to buy your goods and services at a cheaper price. Well, net, you know, Pally touches on this and, and we'll get more into it later, but once the, the tie, the, the mutual measuring stick was gone and the incentive to try and debase your currency became a thing, it was immediately broken because you're just competing with someone else to out debase your currency. And then as soon as you debase your currency, someone else does a counter debasement and does it better. Mm-hmm. And um, th- th- that's always been like a really difficult thing for me to understand. And I still don't fully understand it, but, but I think, but in this book, Pally claims that that will never work. And I think you would agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you were bringing it up to say that it doesn't work, but it, it, it really really seems like it just doesn't work well we talked about shelling points a lot last time and that is kind of the shelling point of fiat right if your cost of production is near zero well then my incentive is to just produce it and acquire something whose cost of production is higher than zero so then you have countries basically debasing today we have countries debasing in unison more or less but if anyone Mm -hmm. debases too quickly then they get called out right you know that one country will accuse another country of, of depreciating their currency to stimulate um, net exports. And so it's just silly. The, the heart of this whole thing is this manipulation of the market mechanic, um, both through the interest rate as it originated here, as you're describing, and then ultimately culminating in the legal monopoly installation of the central bank. Well, when you came to understand like why interest rate tools were developed, I was like, oh, I realize interest rates were created to be raised they were not created to be lowered mm. the, the the function of an interest rate is that you can raise it mm-hmm. and when you're raising the interest rate you are it, it's it's the rate you are paying depositors and it is and then it is, but but it is also raising the cost of borrowing for borrowers mm-hmm. as well so it does cut both ways and that, that is actually kind of hard 
to understand like the, there, there are two different things happening because um, you might ask yourself, well, why is it, why is it a problem that money is leaving the country? Like, yes, it's a problem if you, as a country, if you're exporting more than you're importing and money's leaving, then yeah, you're getting poorer. But that's actually, that actually doesn't explain why banks care. Mm-hmm. Why do banks care? Well, banks care because in a gold standard, they have this thing called convertibility. And the more gold that leaves the country, the more banks can go insolvent. Mm-hmm. And the banks don't care as much about the country as they do about just their business. The banks have to retain gold so that they can keep their reserve ratio, which matters a lot more in a gold standard because you have to have enough gold to maintain convertibility. So mm-hmm. so the banks keeping the the banks keeping money in reserve so that they can maintain the value of the currency speaks to the central remit of central banks before they were captured by the state. The job of the bank was maintain the money, maintain the integrity of the money, make sure that the money, whatever we call our local money, whatever like language we use, whether it's dollars or marks or whatever we call it, make sure that it's convertible to gold and that's your job. So the mm-hmm. bank wanting to keep gold and, and raise their rates to attract gold is so that they can keep the money valuable. That's it. That's all the banks are trying to doing. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if they're, they're not trying to save the economy, they're not trying to fix a larger issue. They're just trying to keep their business going. Yes. And, I think it's a great point. Yeah. So interest rate controls introduced again to inhibit gold outflows, but they ultimately create these international trade imbalances, right? Clearly, if if the money is not if the money's not leaving the country that should have left the country to pay for net imports, then there's a problem. And this this ultimately breaks, creates a breakdown in the balance of payments internationally. And then Further, when they're increasing interest rates to um, savers, right? They're paying savers more money, basically through this price. It's basically price manipulation. At the end of the day, interest rate control, yes. interest rate being the price of time or money, they're changing the price. So it's it's no longer free market determined. It's centrally planned, effectively. Um, and maybe not centrally planned might be the ultimate outcome. This started, I guess, more at a bank to bank level. Uh, this exacerbates the shortfall in the reserve ratio of banks, as you highlighted towards the end of the last episode, which leads to a necessary restriction on convertibility, right? All of a sudden, the bank is in a very insolvent situation and increasingly vulnerable to runs on the bank. So, you know, you can't, you basically can't twist economic reality without it snapping back into your face at some point. Right. And that's, that's if, that's if interest rate tools are used contrary to are used in 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 lieu of like fund having a fundamentally valuable economy if you're like mm-hmm. the economy is having a permanent uh import surplus and you're like well it doesn't matter we're not going to try and fix it we're just going to sort of use the central bank and interest rates to paper over mm-hmm. it then you're going to in the words of the Cunliffe report create um an overabundance of this short-term debt that would in the end be disastrous to the credit of the country. Exactly. And like the, your first clue, like it, on the gold standard, if you have an 
import surplus, you're importing more than you're exporting, the, the role of the bank is to raise interest rates. And I think a lot of people should be like, that's, that doesn't make sense. If you're importing more than you're exporting, that means that you're your economy is in a precarious position, and if you raised interest rates, that would cause a depression. And so, but it the makes, fact that like, sorry, it kind of makes sense intuitively. Just to insert here that if money is leaving your country, that you would expect the interest rate to go up. That's the price of money, right? Supply and demand for money. You know, hearing you say it that way, it does make sense. But in my my modern mind, just like having grown up in the system, mm-hmm. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Money, we're we're not making enough, and how is the correct response to raise interest rates? That would make things harder for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the fact yeah. that the fact that that those two things don't compute is actually a sign that our current system is broken, because it means that that I was never taught to think through the the underlying mechanics, which is that when there's when you have a um, when when money's leaving the economy, it means that goods are cheaper elsewhere. And if you raise interest rates, it actually slows down economic activity domestically. And that part I grasped, and that's sort of where my mind stops. But there's a second part to that, which is that if economic activity has to slow down, then there's less jobs, there's less activity, and then prices go down, and then mm-hmm. you're competitive again. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the the macro effect of raising interest rates in order to maintain the value of the currency has a secondary, sorry, the micro effect of a bank acting in its own selfish best interest to do its single job to maintain the integrity of the currency actually has a beneficial macro effect, which is to create lower prices, which makes your country more competitive and might smooth out your import surplus problem. Mm. But the fact that we don't ever do that, that we've never raised Mm. rates (laughs) in order to fix the money, in order to make us more competitive on a price, from a price standpoint, is actually the problem. Mm -hmm. But we've never had the political environment of the political will to be able to pay that deflationary price to make us price competitive. And it's largely because we have to get dollars out of the world because of Bretton Woods. I mean, we, we sort of created the system and we've been living right. inside the confines of something that, that, that actually demands of us that we do the wrong thing for our own long-term selfish best interest. Right. Yeah. If it, we, this is the evisceration of the United States domestic industrial economy, right? It's that we never get that corrective mechanism. We, we've been in an import surplus forever. I mean, post Bretton Woods, and yet rates have, we've just steadily lowered rates the whole time. There's been no corrective mechanism at all. So as domestic labor becomes way overpriced, or I guess you could say goods and services, mm-hmm. this creates a lot of offshoring pressure, right? Corporations right. want to move the, anything that can be moved offshore to satisfy domestic demand is moved offshore. And that's led to the financialization and hollowing out of the U.S. economy. Stimulation of the economy is supposed to come from the economy being competitive. Mm-hmm. That's where the stim- that's that's where stimulus is. You, you're yes. competitive, and you start attracting earnings from abroad. Yes, that's the real stimulation we're supposed to get. 
and and interest rates were not designed to fix that problem, nor mm-hmm. can they. Right. And I would just so, point here yeah. that, you know, we've described a lot of Bitcoiners, let's say, have shared a lot of problems with fiat currency. But I think you could point just very practically and mechanically just here without getting into anything more nebulous that fiat is creating an economic cancer on the United States. Like the, the exorbitant privilege cuts both ways if mm-hmm. is another way to think about it. That there, we've paid a heavy cost for this um, privilege, I guess, to export inflation unto the world. And it creates massive economic imbalances that we're really seeing come to a head here in the early 21st century. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm watching as this whole, I mean, yeah, made that's been, that's been the thing that's been the most gripping to me in the last couple of years is understanding pre COVID Mm -hmm. that we're at the end of this system Mm -hmm. and that the signs that we're at the end of the system are like everywhere. Yeah. And so, so let's go back into where we left off with the Cunliffe report that it's sort of, we're going to get to paragraph six, which restates in the Cunliffe report language, uh, what kind of what we're just talking about. Um, Paragraph six says when apart from a foreign drain of gold credit at home threatened to become unduly expanded. So they're saying that you can have, you can have, um, you might have foreigners depositing gold with you for interest because you offered higher interest and they might take that gold away. And then that would damage your credit because now the, the, the monetary base is being sucked away and then you're at risk of, of having a run on the bank. So, so that's a problem. Now, apart from that problem, we're saying this isn't, we're not describing that problem. We're describing a different problem, which is a credit euphoria. So when apart from a foreign drain of gold credit at home threatened to become unduly expanded, the old currency system tended to restrain the expansion and to prevent the consequent rise in domestic prices, which ultimately causes such a drain. The expansion mm-hmm. of credit by forcing up prices involves an increased demand for illegal tender, both from the banks in order to maintain their normal proportion of cash to liabilities and from the general public for the payment of wages and for retail transactions. In this case, also, the demand for such currency fell upon the reserve of the Bank of England, and the bank was thereupon obliged to raise its rate of discount in order to prevent the fall in the proportion of that reserve to its liabilities. So and there, this is, a, by the way, this is in the context of Peel's Act or the Bank Charter Act of 1844, where they had a strict formula and they had to adhere to the formula at all times. They had to maintain a certain number of reserves either in um, debt, uh, government debt or coin. Mm-hmm. And if they, they just by law couldn't, they couldn't break that ratio except when by law they broke it during a panic mm-hmm. when they were allowed to break the law. But normally they had to keep, they had to keep that reserve. Uh, they had to maintain that reserve. So they'd have to raise interest rates to make sure they had enough gold. Um, and then it goes on the same chain of consequences of we, as we have just described followed and speculative trade activity was similarly restrained. Yeah. So to me, it's like it. It's it's interesting. Like everything that we're saying starts to make sense. Like it starts to the picture. All the gears start to mesh, and I get 
how all of this makes sense in this gold-based system that we're contemplating, mm-hmm. where there's that where the the amount of money is finite, and it's like kind of obvious to see that an abundance of borrowing raises prices, and mm-hmm. prices being raised means you have to borrow more to 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 meet those prices if you're running a business. Mm-hmm. And then the bank has to balance the total number of credit against a fixed money supply. And the feedback mechanism has to be stopped or else you, or else the bank will clearly be insolvent. Like you're mm-hmm. lending more, prices go up, they have to borrow more, but the base money is fixed. So like if you don't have a limited money supply at the center of the system, then what's the reason to ever stop the profligate lending and the, prof- and the credit euphoria? There's nothing, there's no rudder to guide the policy of the bank. And so once you remove the scarcity of money, all you have left is politics. Right. <laughs> that's the only, that's then, then it's like, well, why would you ever restrain credit? And in fact, we're finding out like what it's like when a system just tries to boost credit forever. Right. Yeah. It is, it annihilates the middle class ultimately. Right. Um, you know, well, it's there's so many counter. It's very clearly multivariate, being the global economy. There's a lot of things going on here. One of the things I've described is, I guess it's a, a theory really that, I think the fiat currency complex has been as sustainable as it has globally, largely because we've had all of these economic gains from globalization, and more recently digitization that this uh, scheme has been able to harvest the economic surplus from, right? That there's there's more wealth being created, so there's more uh, fuel for the fire, if you will. Mm-hmm. But with gold, you know, gold was effectively the grounding mechanism then for these excessive credit expansions. But when you remove that grounding mechanism, as you said, all you're left with just politics. And politics does not ground itself out. It just fights for the scraps, basically. Mm-hmm. And so you get these positive feedback loops that just run amok. They have no, there's no corrective mechanism back to economic reality. It just gets further, you get further and further away from supply and demand and closer and closer to policy action, driving the organization of, of economic activity in the world. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly where we are. And it, the, in um, the dying of money, Marx, Marx calls that the, the law of the exponential inflation, which is that once an in inflation, and by inflation, all, we always have to redefine. By inflation, we mean mm. a government creating money to, mm. to, to fund its uh, governmental business. Mm. Once an inflation has begun, it has to increase exponentially and we're at the end of that you know that's why the latest quantitative easing was several x the size of the previous quantitative easing right and the next one that will have and we will there will be another one. Oh yeah that one will be several x the size of the last one yes um so until until the is, crack up boom as mises described mm-hmm um this is back to the report. There was therefore an automatic machinery by which the volume of purchasing power in this country was continuously adjusted to world prices of commodities in general. Domestic prices were automatically regulated so as to prevent excessive imports, and the creation of banking credit was so controlled that banking 
could be safely permitted. This is such an interesting sentence. And this is not Pally, this is Cunliffe. Banking could be safely permitted a freedom from state interference, which would not have been possible under a less rigid system. The rigidity is what gave banking the freedom. This is like, so like early on, this is what you and I talked about. It is the, the laws of the system, the, the, the inflexibility of the system gave freedom to the banks to just do the one thing they were supposed to do. Right. It's, you know, it's very interesting. It's like gold. I think we used this analogy previously, but gold is like the gravity of money or the thermodynamics where it's the, it was the, the natural order of the world sort of established gold as money. And that is, that provided a, I guess, a layer of accountability to the banking system itself, where they all had to be accountable to this external reality that none of them individually could control. And that's what made them honest, right? And gave them, they were free to operate within the confines of these rules, but it's rules that none of them could change. Yeah. And it's kind of a paradox, right? It's like we said and this is quite the paradox, but submission to truth is freedom. It's like the truth of living on earth is what we have gravity or energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Well, gold was the truth basically, right? It was money freely selected. And so long as banks adhered to that standard, it gave them, uh, I guess, freedom to operate in a sustainable way. Is that the right way to think about yeah. it? I, I think that's a good way to put it. it. It's it's why we strive for automaticity. It's, it's yes. It gets back to this deep drive we have to find some rules that everyone can agree on. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only way to have productive, cooperative competition between strangers who speak yes. different languages and live on different continents. And a successfully repeatable game, right? Because once someone can get on the other side of that, where they are actually making the rules of the game, Mm -hmm. that's the power to win in perpetuity. So everyone's going to fight for that power. But when the rules are fixed and nobody can change them, then everyone's just going to play by the rules. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Lowry's, again, I keep going back to Lowry. He talks about this really well, that like Bitcoin is like... Did you hear his, his bit, Bitcoin is antlers? Did he say that on your? Yeah, he's digital antlers, which is an yeah. awesome one. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep reading here. Yeah. Paragraph seven. Under these arrangements, this country was provided, England, this country was provided with a complete and effective gold standard. The essence of such a standard is that notes must always stand at absolute parity with gold coins of equivalent face value, and that both notes and gold coins stand at absolute parity with gold bullion. When these conditions are fulfilled, the foreign exchange rates with all countries possessing an effective gold standard are maintained at or within gold specie points. The gold specie points were like, yes, they might there might be a slight deviation, a teeny bit, but and again, interest rates were designed to seasonally smooth out those slight deviations and and provide like just the smallest opportunity for arbitrage amongst a, a, a select class of people who are in touch with. And there are lots of things that countries could do to affect like the price of gold relative to their currencies, e- even including as like they could put the mint further away from the border 
so that it was like a little bit more expensive to to ship the gold. So maybe it's cost like maybe one or two extra basis points to ship the gold an extra 50, 100 miles. And so that removed, or, you know, a, a, a little bit of arbitrage opportunity if someone wanted to ship gold away. You know, there are like little mm-hmm. things they could do, but these weren't massive speculations on the value of a currency. And that's what the gold specie points were. The larger point is that when everything has to stay in lockstep, the currency, the currencies have to trade at par with the coin and the coin has to trade at par with the bullion, then you have an effective gold standard. And so, like, you know, I, I just keep wondering: is this what can, can, can this can this get us to some kind of way to envision uh, Bitcoin notes, or you know, some? So I, I don't know if we need notes. I don't know that it should come from like. I think I, I had written at one point like. Legislation. I don't think legislation is the right word. Is there like, can banks start issuing notes against Bitcoin that will function in the same way? But then I, I don't, I don't know if you need the notes because Bitcoin doesn't have the limitations of gold, and it was the limitations that required the notes. It's really only once you get into the creation of credit that notes start coming into being, where you're not actually trading the Bitcoin. Yeah, and the creation of credit itself is somewhat stimulated by the limitations of gold, right? If you I mean, not entirely. There's still going to be some demand or for people to just borrow or, you know, to speculate on ventures that haven't materialized yet. But my sense is that the portability of money would, well, let's say specifically the portability and efficiency of final settlement, something like that would be inverse to the demand for borrowing. So then on a Bitcoin standard, I think you would have a lot less borrowing. And I think the notes component would be satisfied by something like the Lightning Network, you know, something that just makes it really transactable. Mm-hmm. So kind of a permission, not permission less, but permission and trust minimized transaction layer. I think it might also come in the form of something, something that replaces what notes did. You know, note notes back in this time period allowed for a different type of i mean credit had an, had had largely a different shape to it which was that you um have a cotton crop and mm-hmm. you're going to give it to um an intermediary whose 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 sole job it is is to put it on a barge and take it to a different city which mm-hmm. takes a week and then someone in that city is going to sell it to someone overseas which takes 2 months but you as so so you as the cotton grower, you would like money now. So mm-hmm. what you get is a bill of exchange, which allows you to. Um, you you're basically getting a promissory note mm-hmm. from the intermediary, and that note would usually be payable in ninety days if you like walked into a bank and say, okay, it's ninety right. days, and I'm gonna you know. So the, it's it's a different type of credit. You're actually it was a, a credit money. The, these these um, bills of exchange were yeah. um, drawn against banks that yeah. would that, that you know would honor them. And you, as the merchant, you're allowed to get paid today for a good that is going into the market, but won't actually get sold for another two months. Right, almost like a smart contract. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. So, so something that satisfies that function can easily come out of the 
like the Bitcoin technology stack. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, something that maps the satisfaction of contractual conditions against the release of funds, right? Because you're describing is this things getting in or exported cotton, but there's many stages it has to go through before it's ultimately um, it's ultimately satisfying market demand and being converted to money, basically. Right, and you're essentially token essentially tokenizing. Yes. Their their product, mm -hmm. and what they want is the gold. But right. if they're if they're willing to to take a slight percentage loss, because these notes of exchange didn't trade at par, they traded usually at like six percent. Mm -hmm. So then, even even when the grower then went into the bank to cash the note, they still they still were were getting a few percent percent off, mm. and and largely what they're paying for with that percent was someone else doing all the work of shipping the gold, keeping the key or not shipping the gold, keep keeping a gold deposit and all the work of maintaining the base money. And then you can just deal with the paper and to pay us for dealing with the gold. We'll, we'll take a couple points off this, this bill of exchange. Mm -hmm. And if you want to sell it even earlier, so now you've got this, this note of this, uh, this exchange note. Well, the note is the note matures in 90 days where you walk into the bank and you can get 94 cents on the dollar, 95 cents on the dollar. But um, if you want, you can get paid earlier than that by someone who's going to rediscount the note and give you even less. But now you can get paid now. So mm. that was another economy was the people who were looking for um, they were looking for income on their capital mm -hmm. and they'd be like, well, let me find a bunch of notes that want to be rediscounted. So someone has a, a 90 day note and they want money. They don't want the money. They don't want the $95 in 90 days. They, mm -hmm. They'll take $93 today, today and yeah. I get the two. I turn, I keep the note for 90 days. Yeah. And that was actually the beginning of yield, mm -hmm. right? Real yield for people in, with capital who are in, in banks and like, well, we can, we can pay you today for you know a couple percent for something that will will exchange at close closer to par when it matures in 60 to 90 days and this is probably why treasury bills these were called bills and the discounting of bills in the london money market was a huge source of credit and income and yield and i think that's i mean i'm guessing that's why treasury bills because treasury bills now are like short term that's probably why they're mm -hmm. called bills but i'm just guessing mm -hmm. yeah the and th there's a deep point here that you know the credit in the credit itself is instrumental then to the dispersion of risk into the economy and also which basically is enabling us to do larger scale more roundabout production processes because we can we can spread the risk more evenly among more economic actors mm -hmm. and you can also more deeply fractionate the equity interest too um so it, this is just i mean these instruments allowed the, econ the economy to bootstrap itself to its current mode of global sophistication. So it's not like they were just, they, they emerged with a very practical purpose and intent, but they kind of become, because they're disconnected from economic reality, I guess in the sense that the bank kind of has an asymmetric position that it was able to be corrupted over time to where we end up with like a pure fiat money. Well, eventually. it, it, I think it was. I think it was corrupted largely by World War One. You know, mm. that was really the moment. 
I mean, that's sort of where the story is headed. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, the banks. I, I mean, Pauly is is pretty complimentary to central banking. Mm-hmm. He thinks they did a pretty good job. I, this is not this book is not a indictment of central banks. It does tell the story about how they ultimately became possessed by the political process. So mm-hmm. it does tell the story of how they failed. But under the gold standard, I think he actually thought they did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's interesting as well, because their job was simpler. Their job was to maintain the currency. And even I, I read a quote um, uh, a little while back from um, Montague Norman talking about how we really can't give people basically it's like we really can't give people gold because then we won't be able to control the purchasing power of the money mm-hmm. i mean like i think like i read that quote and i was kind of casting aspersions on what he was saying and i and i and i think i stand by the criticism but if you want to be if you want to be sympathetic to him you look at it in the context of what he's saying which is that our job is to maintain the purchasing power of the money and if we give people the gold then we can't control the gold we can't Mm-hmm. control the the purchasing power of the fiat money relative to the gold. And that is my job. My job is to make sure that the British pound sterling is always at par. And in, in order to maintain that convertibility, I know I have to have, I have to have gold in my vault to make our monetary instrument, the instrument of the world. So that's, that's his selfish agenda. And it is, at least it is a selfish agenda which strives to maintain the purchasing power of the pound. Mm-hmm. Um, but but he can only do that by taking away the people from having control of the purchasing power of the gold itself. Yeah, it's like it's a good intention, but it's a bit hubristic and probably, you know, assuming a lot of. The, very few people had as deep of an understanding of this as Pauli, as we're so privileged to reflect on. So it's almost these these micro uh, expressions of individual or institutional self interest. When they're divorced from gold, they, you know, central banking started out with a purpose that helped gold scale, but it was slowly divorced from that purpose and captured by the political apparatus. Ultimately, I think that that's, you know, that, that, and I don't know if that would have happened if it hadn't been for World War One. Yeah. Um, Which is a weird thing, too, because in part, World War One, what is what it was because of fiat currency. So there's a, a self reinforcing, like a mutual reinforcing um, mechanism here, where it's like the scope of World War One was larger because of fiat currency. But also the demand for fiat currency was to fund the war. So it's, right, uh, right. it's complicated. Right. And it, it, it points out another another like kind of contradiction, which is that the the gold standard actually became a a credit standard and a and a and a essentially mm-hmm. a, a sterling standard. And the power the success of central banks paved the mm-hmm. way for what we have now because since they were the guardians of the money supply the, like the better job they did at what they were doing and they were the guardians of the money supply, the more ripe they were for a takeover. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so they were successfully um, administrating this 
system of exchanging fiat money for gold because gold had these limitations. And so they became the guardians of the money. And because they were the guardians of the money, they're they absorbed into the state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was yeah. the biggest honeypot in the world. Biggest honeypot ever. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. You know, I mean, maybe one way to th think about this is that it just, we moved the shelling point really where the shelling point on a gold standard is to just hold gold, right? Like it, mm -hmm. it is the, the voluntarily selected monetary technology and it represents a call option on presumably growing global capital stocks in a functioning economy. Um, so it gives you a lot of optionality, you know, deep liquidity, saleability, whatever you want to call it. But when you start to divorce the monetary system from that honest money standard, the shelling point moves towards this race to debase that we described, you know, via interest rate manipulation, um, debasing the currency to stimulate net exports, et cetera. And really, uh, then as you, as we were saying here, getting into world war one, right. That they're, it perverts the incentives in a way that if one country is debasing their currency to fund the war effort, then you almost have to, if you're a combatant against them, because otherwise their, their war chest is much larger than yours. So there's a perverse Darwinian counterforce at play here. Once you start to deviate from the honest monetary system of gold and get into this political, we'll say politicized system of fiat. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could end, you know, honestly, there's a lot more to talk about, but like mm. from a fundamental standpoint, that's kind of all you need to know. Mm. That's really it. Once you're divorced from the ground rules completely, then you're, you're held hostage by the monetary policy of your craziest neighbor. Exactly. <laughs> the, the craziest, the craziest person in the system sort of sets the tone for everybody else yes <laughs> which is a really bad system <laughs> yeah um i had found this lenin quote which i thought was just a he by the way was not talking about central banks being absorbed after world war one but it, it is a funny troll 
that he wrote that without big banks, socialism would be impossible. The big banks are the state apparatus, which we need to bring about socialism. A single state bank, the biggest of the big, with, with a branch in every rural district in every factory will constitute as much as nine-tenths of the socialist apparatus. This will be countrywide bookkeeping, countrywide accounting of the production and distribution of goods. This will be, so to speak, something in the nature of the skeleton of socialist society. Wow. That is a heck of a quote. I've never heard that one. And that, you know, I, ironically, it's, it's interesting that that accidentally came true, not because the banks were serving socialist goals, but because the banks were actually serving capitalist goals. Right. But they became a honeypot for takeover by the state. It's so, damn, that's a good one. You know, I'd read uh, Marx's manifesto to the communist party, 1848, his measure number five with something similar. It's like he's laying out the steps to the communist utopia and step five, you know, quite near the top is we have to control all cash and credit with a legal monopoly. Um, but this quote from Lenin cuts even more directly. I mean, the Ben Franklin quote you read last time, I, I, I thought about it all week. The right. deflation, inflation, wake up as paupers on the land that our parents, that our grandparents died for. Yeah. Paraphrasing from memory, but man, yeah. that, that really, that really struck me in the heart, that one. Especially yeah, that he ties deflation and inflation together psychologically for me, because that's the whole thing that we're obsessed with. And that's, yes, that's the reality of what we're living through. And the fact that we're living through to me is another echo of the, of the twenties, which is again, this whole discussion is bracketed by we're at the, we're at, we're at the inflection point of one system tipping over into a new, that that's, that's what I, that's where I think we are. We're at the end of a, of, of an old system Mm -hmm. And something new is going to come out of it. And all of these things point to that. Couldn't agree more. And uh, it also just points back to the discussion we had about, you know, portfolio construction. It seems to me like we are going to enter this whipsaw stage of inflation deflation, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're seeing some inflationary pressures now. We're now hearing um, kind of a uh, somewhat surprising tone coming out of the fed about tightening you know at first it was like oh no rate hikes for several quarters then all of a sudden they're talking about quantitative tight tightening even to fight inflation so without speculating on the intention behind it all it does seem like things will become more volatile before we make this transition you know it's almost yeah, like a, a phase shift where the the molecules of water vibrate a lot more quickly before they freeze or something like that and it's going to be more confusing, and I think it's going to be more difficult if you're – it's going to be more difficult to stay solvent and on top of it. Like mm -hmm. all the signals are either either meaningless, accurate, or reversed. Like I heard this interesting discussion about how a lower than expected inflation print from a couple – a couple days ago we got the 7%. But before it came out mm – -hmm. I had a really interesting conversation that if it came out lower than what people are expecting, they're expecting seven. If it came out lower, 6.55, then that would help risk assets. Mm -hmm. You'd think that a high inflation, like, like, um, and that that would help Bitcoin too. Mm -hmm. And you would, that to me was counterintuitive at first. You'd think, well, high inflation, that's, 
that could be good for Bitcoin. But a low inflation reading mm. means the Fed won't have to tighten. And mm -hmm. the Fed not tightening is ultimately what makes Bitcoin, you know, is one of the things, one of the things that gives Bitcoin its value. Right. And so I'm like, Dad, that's just that's just perverted. It's perverted that an untruthful lower reading on inflation gives the Fed the political cover to keep money printing. You know, you, you have to it's get the system is so confusing. Yeah. Yeah, it it really is a mess. And then I, I don't know, they're they're between a rock and a hard place too, right? Because they have to keep pumping the equities market. So even this talk of, and they have to do that largely because there's a significant constituent interest, you know, in terms of pensions, endowments, uh, institutional investors, like they're using equities effectively as a store value because fiat's been so compromised. Um, if the Fed doesn't keep stepping in to provide a bid in equities, then we're going to have a real, a real economic calamity on our hands. So it's just kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I mean, I, you know, I have a union pension and the union pension is prescribed at 7%. I don't mm -hmm. know how they're getting that 7%, you know, right. in, in anything that's guaranteed. They're not. I mean, I'm right. assuming that pension just doesn't exist. I'm assuming I'll never get it. Yeah. Or it'll be far, vastly devalued. And if I'm in that position, then every other pension must be in that position as mm -hmm. well. Um, I think that's a good so, assumption. So like, so we see ourselves at this inflection point between an old system and a new system. So how would, how would the new system, if it's birthed on Bitcoin, how would it feel? And so now in this discussion, let's spend a little time living inside of the heyday of the gold standard. And I, and I think the, the best place to be would be inside the London money market when gold worked. So like late 1800s, when you're at the center of the place that controlled credit and controlled the gold. Um, I wanna talk about this because I hope you and I can like flesh out some ideas on what the system might look like under mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I think this was actually getting into this material was very challenging for me as a hodler because I, I still have trouble conceptualizing credit. And I, and, and I went into this, I'll just tell you, I went into this work being a, a, a classic hodler where everything I hold is self-custodied. And, and, and um, the idea was of lending it out to one of the big institutions was anathema. And, I, and I've come away from this research desiring the opposite. I now have a desire to lend out my Bitcoin for income. I, I don't know yeah. that, the, that the market is ready for that. I don't know that the that the, that there's like enough infrastructure. I'm really interested in things like lend at hodl hodl, which where, mm -hmm. you know, th that's like a more peer to peer version, and it's all collateralized. But I really have a desire. Maybe it's not this year. Maybe it's not in the next five years. I have a desire to put the Bitcoin to work, and I see some answers there to some of like the traditional criticisms of Bitcoin, I, I, I see some answers 
in 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 a desire to loan it out to productive projects to mm. productive enterprises um but but that's jumping ahead a little bit mm. um i want to go i you know i keep going back to this badget book um the lombard street because of all the stuff on england in like the late 1800s that book is like so vivid and so fun and the language is like so accessible um so i want to read this section from one of the early chapters mm -hmm. um he writes the briefest and truest way of describing lombard street is to say that it is by far the great and this is written in 1873 i keep i keep saying the date whenever i read this stuff it, it is by far the greatest combination of economical power and economical delicacy the world has ever seen of the greatness of the power there will be no doubt everyone is aware that england is the greatest moneyed country in the world everyone admits that it has much more immediately disposable and ready cash than any other country but very few persons are aware how much greater the ready balance the floating loan fund, which can be lent anyone or for any purpose, is in England than it is anywhere else in the world. Of course, the deposits of bankers are not strictly accurate are not a strictly accurate measure of the resources of the money market. On the contrary, much more cash exists out of banks in France and Germany, and in all non-banking countries than could be found in England or Scotland where banking is developed. But that cash is not, so to speak, money market money it is not attainable a million in the hands of a single banker is a great power he can at once lend it where he will and borrowers can come to him because they know or believe that he has it but the same sum scattered in tens and fifties through a whole nation is no power at all no one knows where to find it or whom to ask for it concentration of money in banks though not the sole cause is the principal cause which has made the money market of England so exceedingly rich, so much beyond that of other countries. If any nation wants to make a railway, especially a poor nation, it is sure to come to this country, to the country of banks, for the money. It is true that English bankers are not themselves very great lenders to foreign states, but they are great lenders to those who lend. They advance on foreign securities, as the phrase is, with a margin, that is, they find 80% of the money and the nominal lender finds the rest. And it is in this way that vast works are achieved with English aid, which for which but for that aid would never have been planned. In domestic enterprises, it is the same. We have entirely lost the idea that any undertaking likely to pay and seen to be likely can perish for want of money. Yet no idea was more familiar to our ancestors or is more common now in most countries. And I love this last line. A citizen of London in Queen Elizabeth's time could not have imagined our state of mind. He would have thought that it was of no use inventing railways if he could have understood what a railway meant, for you would not have been able to collect the capital with which to make them. Wow. This this passage starts to bring together, again, some of the stuff that Jeff Snyder was talking about, which is that early on, banks served this role as intermediaries where, where valuable projects found the capital they needed. That was like the, the wonderful use that banks served. And if we're going to have a Bitcoin standard, they're going to have to serve that role again. Or some institution or technology or platform or interface 
will have to serve that technology or it won't have to, but I think I want it to. Yeah. it seems like somewhat, I mean, I feel intuitively that that industry would emerge at Bitcoin after Bitcoin has monetized, right? When it's only appreciating is, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but if, if Bitcoin's fully monetized, presumably it's increasing in purchasing power equivalent with the economy. So if the economy is mm -hmm. growing at two or 3% per year, that would be roughly what Bitcoin's purchasing power would expand at. Now, the arguments against that is that, okay, well, why invest in anything? I'll just hold money. Well, what that fails to account for is if you just, if everyone just held money, then no one would invest at all. So the purchasing power of money would actually decline as the capital stock drew down. So it seems like a, an intermediary function would emerge uh, mediated by the natural interest rate, right? Where, where yeah. savers are basically being connected to borrowers to execute these projects that will outperform um, global, expected global productivity growth. So, and that's, that's what you want a market to do, right? You want it to make us more productive over time versus the current on the fiat currency standard. We're just trying to allocate into anything to outpace inflation. If you're holding the money, the, the, the uh, uh, Bitcoiners, um, Bitcoiners hesitancy to, to lend is just Gox PTSD. Mm -hmm. It's Quadriga, Canada right. Quadriga PTSD. Right. But that, that will happen less and less, or, you know, you'll just, you'll never put more than two or 5% on any one platform. Right. But we will get over that. Yeah, or it'll be multi-sig secured something, but the, the need will always be there in any economy. And the desire, like, you know, I, I was, I was before I started this research, I was, I was pretty won over to the narrative that began to be popularized that you'll never sell your Bitcoin, you'll borrow, you'll borrow against it. But I, I, I'm not into that. I think that's actually, I, I actually think it's better to sell it. I think borrowing against your Bitcoin to fund your like lifestyle your consumable purchases is not, I'm not attracted to that. It's not, it's not interesting to me. I feel like then I'm borrowing money and I know I'm not going to make any money on what I'm using it for. And I'm just putting myself in debt. And the only way I did the math on that, the only way for that to actually be profitable in reality, the Bitcoin actually has to appreciate so much that the appreciation pays for the entire principle I borrowed. Otherwise I'm going to have to sell at some point. And I, and, and I think it just gets me into like, um, a dangerous lifestyle thing where I'm borrow it, it, I'm just not into that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pro if, if I didn't have any cash flow, I would sell Bitcoin to live. I don't have a problem with that. And, but what I'd really like to do is, is, you know, I, I, I own this Bitcoin. It's like, I own this, an estate and I want to have some income from it. Mm -hmm. That's what's attractive to me. The, I think like it, th there's, um, there's a lot of criticism out there saying, oh, you, you know, don't be greedy. You want two or 3% on your Bitcoin. It's going to appreciate a hundred percent, you know, keep it in, in, in locked away in multi-sig. I get that. I get that. But when Bitcoin's only appreciating at the rate of the society is growing two to 3% a year, I'm going to want another two or 3%. I, I'm, I mm -hmm. don't want to, I don't want to go into debt for my lifestyle and I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. If I can live off two or 3% in interest, mm -hmm. that's what I want. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, 
I mean, I'm just a simple man. I want to match my inflows to my outflows. So my, I want my present income to more than fund my lifestyle plus savings. Right. So I'm, I'm adding to that estate as you described it all the time. And then when that estate, the thing I I think about right now is that, as we said, the market's not quite mature enough to facilitate the lending and borrowing in a very trust minimized way. I mean, it's getting there. Um, So I guess the argument would be to hold that estate until it's kind of realized its full value. But once it's growing more slowly, you know, two to 3% on that estate, you know, income off of that estate could be a very satisfactory income. Like who knows what Bitcoin's going to peak out at. Um, but for simplicity's sake, I agree. I would not borrow against it to fund current spending. I would only ever borrow against it, I think, to diversify, possibly diversify out of it, right? If you've got, if you have a very huge Bitcoin stack and you want to buy your dream home by borrowing, I don't know, 5%, against your stack, then maybe that's a better route than selling it. Um, I, I, and I, and I think, I think loaning out your Bitcoin or borrowing against it for a productive enterprise mm-hmm. also, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. financing some miners by borrowing against my Bitcoin that yeah. I, I, I would like the income in Bitcoin to match the cost of the loan, right. which is in dollars. So that, that to me makes total sense. So at some point you just divvy up your Bitcoin. Like right now it's, I consider Bitcoin just the savings pool that I'm expecting a large monetization event for. But at some point that pool you divvy up between like long-term holdings, maybe a risk portion, mm-hmm. maybe a portion you're borrowing against. So you're using as collateral, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Yeah. And then some that you're getting, you're getting income from, and then yes. you have to, you, you have to plan. I mean, again, you have to also accept the fact that if you're loaning it out for income, what they're paying you for is the use of it and they're paying you for the risk. So if you accept the risk, then contractually and psychologically accept the risk that it can be lost. Like Mm -hmm. you just have to, that that has to be factored in. That's what you're getting paid for. So like, just to talk about this, another, I'm going to read another budget sequence. Um, This is like this, this illustrated to me so clearly the advantage of having a liquid money market because of the way that it gives advantages to newer entrants into a market. Um, So I'll just read this. But occasional loans to new enterprises in foreign states are the most conspicuous instances of the power of Lombard Street. They are not by any means the most remarkable or the most important use of that power. English trade is carried on upon borrowed capital to an extent which few foreigners have an idea and none of our ancestors could have conceived. In every district, small traders have arisen who, quote, discount their bills largely, and with the capital so borrowed, harass and press upon if they do not eradicate the old capitalist. The new trader has obviously an immense advantage in the struggle of trade. And then he, he gives this uh, advantage, this, this, um, this case study in numbers. I, I love this. If a merchant has 50,000 pounds, all his own, to gain 10%, he must make 5,000 pounds a year and must charge for his, good accord, his goods accordingly. But if another has only 10,000 pounds and borrows 40,000 by discounts, no extreme instance in our modern trade, he then has the same capital of 50,000 pounds to use and can sell much cheaper. 
if the rate at which he borrows is 5%, he will have to pay 2,000 pounds a year. And if, like the old trader, he makes 5,000 pounds a year, he will still, after paying his interest, obtain 3,000 pounds a year or 30% on that 10,000 pounds. Mm. As most merchants are content with much less than 30%, he will be able, if he wishes, to forego some of that profit lower the price of the commodity and then drive the old-fashioned trader the man who trades on his own mm. capital out of the market in modern english business owing to the certainty of obtaining loans on discount of bills or otherwise at a moderate rate of interest there is a steady bounty on trading with borrowed capital and mm. a constant discouragement to confine yourself solely or mainly to your own capital this wow. this opens up a whole thread that that we're going to go on about the value of short-term credit and how, again, it, it, I just, I just love that, that sequence from an interview with Snyder about the valuable intermediary function of the credit market. And this is what got me so excited and it, and, and, um, and look, you know, this is like a really, really good example. You have a, you have a shop, you have something that you make and you only have 10,000 you only have, I'm going to say dollars. I'm going to switch to dollars. You only have $10,000. You can outcompete someone who has a lot more money because you're going to borrow the rest. Mm -hmm. You don't have to make as much. You don't have to make as big of a percentage. You can charge less. This is the power of borrowing money. And they're talking about a system where the money is borrowed against bills of exchange. They're like these short-term self-liquidating credit instruments where you sell something, you promise to sell something, that bill of exchange is good and you know it's a it's a it's a 60 day loan it's a 90 day loan you can borrow against that money you can order a bunch of supplies a bunch of raw materials and make a bunch more and then you can make your spread essentially on that borrowed money but it's not it's not an it's it's not an it's a secured loan and the loan if you look at it from a, a, a like a more macroeconomic perspective the loan is secured against real goods that have been introduced into the economy so the economy is growing through credit but it's not growing faster than the rate of new goods that are introduced the only way that that credit goes bust is if you like don't sell the next batch and then you don't you can't you can't pay off your loans and then your loans self-liquidate but that's a, that, but that's but they're self-liquidating one merchant at a time on a smaller level it's not a society-wide liquidation mm. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm reminded there's just this incentive. It's kind of an incentive trap almost that pushes you into borrowing, right? Right, um, right. And it's kind of a reflection of what we described earlier, where the country, where you're you're now governed by the craziest, uh, you know, geopolitical leader, that if he's debasing his currency to wage war, you have to step up to that um, or step down to that mode of operating as well right um, and then it, but, all of this but, presumably was regulated self-regulated via automaticity of the gold standard but you pull exactly out what I was gonna say you pull that out and it runs amok right you can have the craziest entrant you can have the new crazy neighbor who's using the system in a crazy irresponsible way if you still have the gold standard at the base of it because that person will get liquidated at some exactly point. This is I'm 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 highlighting all these passages which talk about the value of capital and the, the the value of capital in getting the economy started and it remind me of this 
really, really like um, another epiphany passage from Rothbart. He writes that the limits at any time on investment and productivity are a scarcity of saved capital, not the state of technological knowledge. Technological inventions have received a far more important place than they deserve in economic theory. It has often been assumed that production is limited by the state of the arts, by technological knowledge, and therefore that any improvement in technology will immediately show itself in production. Technology does, of course, set a limit on production. No production process could be used at all without the technological knowledge of how to put it into operation. But while, but while knowledge is a limit, capital is a narrower limit. It is logically obvious that while capital cannot engage in production beyond the limits of existing available knowledge, knowledge can and does exist without the capital necessary to put it to use. Technology and its improvement, therefore, play no direct role in the investment and production process. Technology, while important, must always work through an investment of capital. The relative unimportance of technology and production as compared to the supply of ca saved capital becomes evident, as Mises points out, simply by looking at backward or underdeveloped countries. What is lacking in these countries is not knowledge of Western technological methods or know-how. That is learned easily enough. The service of imparting knowledge in person or in book form can be paid for readily. What is lacking is the supply of saved capital needed to put advanced methods into effect. Beautiful. Putting that together with that passage from Lombard Street, it's like I'm actually attracted to the idea of a robust capital market where mm -hmm. you can borrow to produce good ideas. I think mm -hmm. that's a benefit, and I think we'll need that on a Bitcoin standard. Yeah, the, I mean, this brilliantly explicates the importance of knowledge, right? Like we can only create production structures and um, yeah, production structures up to the limits of our knowledge, but it's actually about what we've already produced. You know, that it's the capital itself that is the amplifier of human labor that creates an economization of human action. It's not the idea. The idea has to be implemented. Right. right. Um, and that's really important because if you, if we just focus on spewing out a bunch of theory, you know, or new ideas, which you could maybe kind of argue the fiat complex contributes to with these huge R&D budgets of like biotech companies and whatnot. Not to say there's not some value there, because again, it's, it is a constraint, but we should be focused on the narrow, narrow, narrower constraint as Rothbard describes it, which is capital itself. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars 
to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile at breedlove22, um, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including Bitcoin 2022 affiliate sales. My link tree is linktr.ee backslash breedlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.